Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. My message today is the second in a series we're doing called Water and Spirit. And uh, today's message is, you must be born again. You must be born again. Sarah Ames in today's Christian magazine tells of her seven-year-old daughter, Jessica. Jessica is a deep thinker, especially when it comes to theological questions. And so Sarah is telling this story. She says, recently we discussed why bad things happen sometimes in the world. We were rereading the story of Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. Later that week, Jessica was sick. She was on her back at home in bed, home from school, and feeling miserable, she turned to her mom and she said, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit, I wouldn't be sick. Before I could answer though, she added, of course, if they didn't eat it, we'd be sitting here naked. That reminded me even of my own son. We, our youngest son, Josiah, when he was a little guy, he was a deep theological thinker, and he was always asking us a really profound questions. Sometimes we'd, we'd uh, be you know, by his bed at nighttime. I would go in each night, and I'd pray over the kids, and I'd tickle him and stir him up right after Peggy got him real calm and chill. I'd go in and get him stirred up, and then I'd pray over him, and that was our nightly routine. And as I, was, you know, as I would do this many nights, Josiah would hit us with these questions that would just cause us to go, wow, uh, hmm, we got to think about this one, right? Sometimes they were the kinds of questions where I would say, we'll have to talk about that later, son, right? Because they were just so profound. Well, one time when we were dealing with Josiah, you'll know what I mean by dealing with him, we were disciplining him. And I won't share with you our method of discipline at the time, but we'll just say that it could bring um, the, uh, what's the word, the rod of wisdom to the posterior uh, learning or something like that. Uh, So anyway, uh, I was sitting with him. We had kind of a method, and I was sitting with him, talking with him. And uh, all of a sudden, he says, I'm just so angry at Adam and Eve. If they hadn't have sinned, I wouldn't be getting disciplined right now. And Of course, you know what happened at that moment is I had to restrain myself from completely losing it. I had to turn away from him, (coughs) you know, cough. (coughs) Yeah, son, I know what you mean, you know. And, you know, gather my composure again because what you can't do is you can't let him see you sweat, right? You can't let him see you get weak. And uh, I, I was just thinking about the fact that he was able to make that connection in his mind. And I don't remember how old he was, maybe five, maybe six, but he made that connection in his mind that their sin got in me, and now I'm doing this, and I'm in trouble, their sin's causing me pain. And of course, I had to remind him it's his sin too, right? Um, And today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the human condition and why it's so important that all of us in this room, every person in this room, experience what it means to be born a second time, to be born from above, to be born again. And uh, one of the problems I have with a message like this is many of us have heard the terminology born again, and we live in a culture where words and where language are, are many times changed, and sometimes powerful words and powerful phrases can be drained of their meaning. Uh, one example would be the word awesome. 
Now, awesome used to be a good word. If something was awesome, it inspired you. It was truly awe-inspiring. In fact, there's not a lot of things in our world that you could call awesome. Well, there's a lot, but not the stuff we call awesome. Like, wow, dude, that car is awesome. I'm sorry. Cars are cool, but they're not awesome, right? Or, you know, that ice cream was so awesome, dude, right? And you go, are you kidding me? See, we have taken a word that has great significance and we've drained it of meaning. You know what I mean? Like, 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 you know what I mean? Like, right? You see what we do with the human language? We take words that have significance. Here's one that I hear used all the time, and I use it, and sometimes I catch myself. Two, two words. Words like amazing and incredible. Everything is amazing. Everything's so incredible. I'm like, are you kidding me? It, that thing isn't amazing. Some things are amazing. That's not amazing. That new hair color is not amazing. It's cool, but it ain't amazing. Okay, are you with me? The same is true for the phrase born again. Many times when we hear born again, those of you that are a little older, it conjures up images from the 70s and 80s when the born agains were out, right? And if you're kind of newer in your faith, when you hear the term born again, it might, I don't know what kind of images it conjures up in you, but it might mean a certain kind of Christian or kind of a weirdo. But here's the reality. The Scripture teaches that every one of us must be born again. We must be born again. So we're going to look at a text of Scripture today where Jesus uses this terminology And I want to walk you through it and and cause you to see our own needs. So John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, let's read the story. We're going to learn about Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Here we go, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. It's funny, it almost looks like Jesus' answer has nothing to do with his statement. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, "Uh, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And some of you look at that question and you're like, that dude's a knucklehead. You would have probably asked the same question because you would not have had any context for somebody saying, you have to be born again. And and that's where he was at. What does that mean, I have to be born again? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, of the flesh, is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now before we kind of break down what he's saying here, let's have a little background information. Who is Nicodemus? It's a great name, first of all. Nicodemus was a religious leader of the Jewish nation. He was a member of a a group called the Sanhedrin. They were a special religious council of 70 who had political and religious power in Israel and in particular in Jerusalem. He was of the sect known as the Pharisees. 
And they were very strict adherents to the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have held on to what's known as the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. They believed that observance of the Scriptures, observance of the laws, in all of its minutiae, and then, of course, they added some things to it as well. They believed that that's what would lead them to eternal life and a right standing with God. If you keep all the rules, you do everything exactly as you're supposed to do it, exactly as it's dictated in the Scripture, then you will be good with God. They were rule keepers. They were the best of the best of the best at rule keeping. Nobody kept rules better than the Pharisees. Um, Nicodemus seems to have at least been a secret follower of Jesus. At one point in the text, he defends Jesus against the other members of the Sanhedrin, and in another place, with Joseph of Arimathea, he is a part of the burial of Jesus. He comes to Jesus at nighttime, and some scholars think he did that so the meeting would be secret, so he wouldn't be caught by his brethren, but others think that maybe he just went at nighttime because he knew that he would be interrupted. You couldn't meet with Jesus during the day, because he was always like... Casting demons out, healing sick people, raising the dead, multiplying fish and loaves. Try to get an appointment with Jesus. It was pretty much impossible. So he comes to Jesus at nighttime to meet with him without interruption. And he makes this statement to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, if you've read your New Testament, if you've read your Gospels, you know that that is completely in opposition to what other Pharisees and other teachers of the law said to him. They said to him, you do these signs by demon power. And they resisted him, and they came against him. But Nicodemus seems to be beginning to have his eyes open to the kingdom. It looks as though he's being drawn toward Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, healing the sick, raising the dead, right, doing all these miraculous things, speaking with profoundness and with authority and with power so that when Jesus preached, people were moved. He's recognizing there's something different about Jesus and he's got to know for himself. Now you can probably guess that he's conflicted. He's troubled. He knew that a decision to follow Jesus would cost him much. But he still had to meet him personally and find out. I remember being at a point, and some of you will recognize this, you come to a point when you're on your journey toward faith, if you haven't been raised you know, in the church your whole life or whatever, and you, you come to a point where you start to recognize Jesus is unique, Jesus is holy, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is Lord, but if I follow Jesus, my life's going to be disrupted. You start to recognize, I might lose some friendships. Some of my family may not understand. You start to go through that season where you're weighing and you're testing what you're doing. You're weighing it in the balances because you know that to connect yourself and identify with Jesus Christ is going to cause some people to misunderstand you. Well, that's exactly where Nicodemus was at. Nicodemus understood that if he followed Jesus, all of his brothers would probably reject him. And so he, he had to know. And the first thing Jesus says to him, verses 3 and verse 7, he says, truly, truly. Now, just so you know, those words, truly, truly, they're the Greek words, amani, amani. It's where we get the word amen. So Jesus starts the sentence, not ends it. He starts the sentence with amen, amen. Isn't that weird? And in effect, this is what he's saying. What I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. It's so truthful, I'm going to say it twice. So he says to him, this is the truth. This is the truth. That's in effect what he's saying to him. I say to you, unless one is born again, listen to this, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Verse 7, do not marvel that I said, you must be born again. That begs the question, why must we be born again? Why must we be born again? How many of you believe Jesus is the Son of God? How many of you believe Jesus died on a Roman cross for your sins? How many of you believe He rose from the dead bodily? Do you believe Jesus has authority in your life? Do you believe what He said is the truth, the absolute truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Right. Okay. Now, I got you all to make a commitment. The reason I did is now I want to ask you the question, if Jesus says you must be born again, do you think He knows what He's talking about? Right? So let's follow his line of reasoning. First of all, why do we have to be born again? Did you know that in the beginning, God breathed life into Adam and Eve? Look at this in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And if you look at the original Hebrew, it seems to indicate that God is kind of working with mud. Right? He's got dust and he's got a little bit of water. I don't know if he used his own spit. I don't know. Okay, but God's forming Adam. He forms him from the dust of the ground, and then it says he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, and when he breathes into him, Adam becomes a living creature. He comes alive. But what's important for us to understand is when he breathed into him, he breathed into him two kinds of life. Now, the Greek captures this idea with two words, and those two words are bios or bios and zoe. Bios is the biological life that animates every living thing. He breathed into him bios life, that ability for your heart to beat, and the, that, that life power, that life energy that's in your blood, that life came into him. But another kind of life came into him. The word breath or breathe is connected to the idea of God's spirit, God's life, God, the God kind of life. That's Zoe life. It's a second kind of life. It's life that's eternal. So when God breathed into Adam, He didn't just breathe into him biological life. He breathed into him the God kind of life, Zoe life. And he was animated with a union with God. God's Spirit living within him, causing him to be literally energized, fueled, and fed by the life of God. That's how Adam lived. And that... Death to that life led ultimately to biological death. Spiritual death leads to biological death. Okay, so that's what happened when they fell. We see when humans first disobeyed God, we died. And this is interesting, we died immediately. But the text doesn't say that. Look at what Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in, look at this, for in the day, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The day. Okay, let's look at what happened. Genesis 3, verses 3 and 4, 7 and 8, and verse 19, verse 3. But God said, this is Eve talking back to the serpent, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. Verse 7, after they'd eaten, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they, death begins in them already and death begins in them by establishing a separation between them and God. They begin to flee from the presence of God and relationship is broken. God's heart is broken as they partake of it 
death starts to work in them, their eyes are open, and they become self-conscious. It's one of the first things that happens when we have sin in our life. Have you ever noticed that? You get kind of paranoid. You get kind of weird when you've done something you know you shouldn't. You become self-conscious. At that moment, it's almost like you feel naked. Right? And so they recognized their nakedness and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 19, God pronouncing the curses that come from sin. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, talking to the man, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So relationship between Adam and Eve and God began to die immediately. Death equals separation. That's why we go through what we go through when we have a loved one that dies. We experience a feeling of separation. There's that disconnection. And we can't talk to them, see them, connect with them anymore at that moment. That death and that separation is the reality of what happened when human beings died spiritually. We died spiritually and then the clock began to tick biologically. Because spiritual life leads to biological life. And so they died instantaneously. Right at that moment, they lost their ability to fellowship and intimate communion with God. And the clock began to tick on their natural life. Does this make sense? Okay, so even today, sin brings spiritual death to each of us. Look at Ephesians 2, 1, and 5. And you, speaking of all of us in this room, and you were dead if you're... you know, if you're not a Christian yet, you, you, or before you were born of God, before you were born again, you were actually in a place, and a lot of people don't realize this, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What was that death? It was a spiritual death. You were not alive unto God. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, or we're dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. But then, what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to bring life where there was death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 says, Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. That's when God breathed into him the breath of life. The last Adam, and I have in parentheses Jesus Christ, because that is who the text is talking about, became a life-giving spirit. So here's what happened. Adam came to be, and Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, death came into the world. Sin came into him, and sin is passed on to every man and woman and child ever born from that time, and we're not spiritually alive unto God unless we experience a new kind of birth. And so what happened? Uh, The last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus came, and he started a new creation. He inaugurated a new creation in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he brought his life to us, and that life in us becomes a life-giving spirit, and you literally experience a new birth and a new beginning. Does this make sense? Let's go to the next point. You must be born of water and spirit, verses 5 and 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, two births, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What does it mean to be born of water and of flesh? Some scholars here think this is being born... Uh, uh, through baptism, born again through baptism. But I believe that's wrong. The text is clear to me that water equates to flesh, natural birth. And so this text connects the water to being born the first time as a human being and the spiritual birth as your second birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To be part of this life, you must be born of both water and flesh. 
We're born through water into the earth in the human family. We come through water in birth. And just think about it. Now, I just want to say this right off the bat. Whenever my wife would be around other women and they start having their conversations, their birth conversations, that's usually about the time that I go to the other room. Any other men with me here? Come on, brothers, help me out here, right? They start talking about all the experience of having a baby, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Okay, well, I, here, it's time for me to go get a sandwich, right? I, I'm, I'm not a big, you know, I don't get real excited about birth stories, uh, but there's something that is an interesting inauguration to the event of a woman having a baby, and it is that her water breaks, and a child comes, and we have the amniotic sac, and, and so when a, when, a, when a child comes, that child is born of water, born of flesh, and comes into the world for the first time. And you have to be born to enter into planet earth, right? You, to be a child of the earth, you have to go through birth. And you have to be born of spirit. We must be born of spirit for our dead spirit to come alive. We must go through two births to be able to be a person of earth and heaven, Earthly and fleshly life cannot live in a heavenly and spiritual world. We are incompatible. In the same way that a fish cannot live on land and breathe air, or a man cannot live in the water and breathe water, so we cannot live in God's world without being born into it. Does that make sense? I was born in Hot Springs, Arkansas, USA, planet Earth. Some of you are like, you were born in Arkansas? Yes, I was born in Arkansas. I am a man of the earth because I was born into it. I can only be a part of God's kingdom if I'm born into it. You must be born again, born a second time, born from above to see and enter God's kingdom. So we're born again to see the kingdom of God. And I want to talk about this. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. You know, inside the womb, a person can't see the kingdom of the earth. You've actually got to be born to see. Our son Stephen, I'll never forget, he's our firstborn. When he was born, he came out with his eyes wide open. It was the coolest thing. I remember holding him and he was just like this. I could just tell. He was like, what in the world is this? This isn't warm. You know why they cry when they first come out, right? They've been in this really warm, chill, awesome place. All their food's being provided. It's just cozy. And all of a sudden, it's like they go through this really tight space, right? They're pushed out, and they come out, and there's lights, and there's people, and there's noise, and there's activity, and it's like, ah! wouldn't you? They're born into a world that's almost like traumatic, right? And suddenly, their eyes have to adjust to light, color, texture, movement. All of those things were new to his little eyes. He had to be born into our world to see it. And we cannot see the kingdom of God unless our spiritual death is replaced with spiritual life and we're born into God's kingdom. It's impossible. It's incompatible. If, we concern, if we're concerned about eternal states and heaven and hell, and, you know, and here's, here's the sad thing in our time is many of us, when we go to funerals, right? You go to a funeral and you ever notice that everybody's going to heaven? You ever notice that? I mean, the person being talked about could be an axe murderer who hasn't said anything nice to anybody, who's never shown any dependence or need upon God. 
It could be a person who's a very good person, but very self-sufficient. They said they don't need God. They're, they're going to be good on their own. And we're like, yeah, they're the best guy. They're up there looking on, down on us right now, singing songs and happy and jumping around. And I'm like, wait a minute. If they weren't born into that kingdom, if they didn't experience a new birth, if they didn't have the life of God's Spirit come into them, they're incompatible for that world. For that world is the world of spirit, living spirit, quickened spirit, spirit of Christ, right? So that world, you must be born again to see it, and you must be born again to enter it. Not everybody just gets in because we estimate, yeah, they were a good Joe, right? They don't just get in for that reason. It's not like, you know, God's up there, you know, a lot of times we think, you know, our lives and the lives of people around us are, you know, kind of this um, scale, right? And we, we like to Great on a curve, most of us. But we see the scale, you know, and you know this, I've shared this before. Over here we got Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson. And over here we got Jesus and Mother Teresa, right? And we think as long as we're kind of leaning toward the Jesus and Mother Teresa, we get in. And of course, we're the ones that determine that in our own minds. We weigh our own life and we judge we're pretty good because we always judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, well, my intention was good. You know, I mean, I, I may not have done it. I may not have helped that person on the side of the road, but I thought about it. Beep, right? This is what we think. We think that's how God judges. And God says, no, my standard is absolute perfection. And unless you're born into my kingdom by first letting my son bear your sin and then letting my son give you his rightness, unless your account is credited with his rightness, you're not born into that kingdom. A new spiritual life comes into you. Does this make sense? In a book titled An Anthropologist on Mars, neurologist Oliver Sacks tells about Virgil. Virgil was a man who had been blind from early childhood. When he was 50, he underwent surgery and was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sacks found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with sight were confusing. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into a coherent picture was more difficult. Over time, he learned to identify various objects, but his habits, his behaviors were still those of a blind man. Dr. Sachs asserts, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It's the interim, the limbo that's so terrible. And we are spiritually blind until the new birth. We cannot see God's kingdom. So even seeing God's kingdom, even being spiritually aware, even recognizing Christ and God being the source of everything, seeing your own need for a Savior, seeing your own sin, all of those things are a work of the Holy Spirit that changes the human heart and makes you aware and brings you to life. And that is the breath of God coming into you. Does this make sense? And we must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We're born again to enter. You must be born to enter. The only entrance sign is through birth. The only way to enter is through birth. The only way to enter the spiritual world of God in heaven, again, is to be born into it. You don't just get there because you were good enough. And here's the other thing that's interesting. Your entrance into heaven doesn't begin at death. 
And this is a concept that a lot of us need to shake ourselves from. You need to know something. The Scripture teaches when you're born of God, eternal life already comes into you and begins inside of you. Eternal life isn't what happens when you die. You don't die and then get eternal life as a reward. You began to live an eternal kind of life from the moment or after the process of being born again. So actually, heaven came into you. And you, to some degree, positionally, went into heaven. The Scripture teaches we're seated with Him in Christ Jesus, in the heavenly places right now, if you're a Christian. So you actually begin your entrance into the heavenly world at the moment or the process of your new birth. And you begin to, at that moment to live forever. So when your body dies, it's kind of like that baby being born. You move from one place through a door into a new entrance, but the life that you began in Christ continues into the next realm. Does that make sense? So you're, you're not going to get eternal life when you die. You're in eternal life now. Your entrance into heaven at death is dependence upon your being born again in this life and entering the kingdom of God. Good works, being religious, going to church, being a good person, keeping all the rules like Nicodemus or anything else you can come up with does not give you entrance into God's kingdom. God's kingdom gives you sight and entrance into it, right? Does that make sense? I'm just, some of you right now, you're just like, say what? Right? We're being challenged in our thinking. You must be born again. You know, I I love, I don't remember who said it years ago, but, you know, just because you stand in your garage doesn't make you a car, right? Just because you stand in McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, And just because you go to Grace Harvest Church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Or any church. What makes you a real Christian, a real follower of Jesus is you're born from above, born again, born within, with the life-giving Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is where I end this. What must I do then? Some of you are like, okay, great. How do you do that? Well, a lot of it is God, and we have a part to play. I'm going to put together and and kind of compile two different scripture texts, but Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Romans 10, 9, and I'll show you Romans 10, 9. Put it up there if you would. Romans 10, 9 says this. It's simple. Because if you confess with your mouth, right? You know this verse, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be rescued. Acts 2, 38 says, repent therefore, right? Repent therefore, and be baptized for the remission of your sins, Right and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when I put all those things together, this is what I, I see. What do you do to be born again? The first thing is, and these are all, the order isn't important, okay? So here's, here's what happens. You turn from your sin to Jesus. You, you are aware that my self-salvation project doesn't work, and I can no longer be my own Savior, and I need God, and my sin, I know my sin put Jesus on the cross, and I accept what He's done for me, and I believe in what He's done, and I turn away from my sin, I'm done with you, sin, you've been my master long enough, and I turn to Jesus, you're my Lord and my Savior, I believe you're risen from the dead, and I trust you and I cling to you. Secondly, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and He's risen from the dead. That's what that scripture in Romans 10, 9 says. Confession is important. Many of you, you just think things, but can I just challenge you to think 
think about the power of confessing it, saying it out of your mouth. There's something that seems to happen in the human heart and in the human mind when we say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I believe in you. I know you're risen from the dead. Something happens in the human heart when we speak what we say we believe in our hearts. Thirdly, we believe. To believe in is to cling to, rely on, trust in. We trust in Jesus alone to rescue us from our sin. We don't trust in our own abilities to be good enough. You know, I hear people say sometimes, um, I go to church, but my life's a mess. And listen, I'll I'll come to church after I kind of clean up a bit. You ever heard somebody say that? You know, I wouldn't be welcome there. You don't understand. I'm a mess. You don't know what I'm into. You don't know what kind of stuff I do. And my answer is always, I don't really care. I don't really care. You can't clean yourself up. You can't get good enough for God to say, oh, now you're in. Oh, you're finally good enough. You didn't do that one particular sin for two days. Now you're in. You you can't do that. You come as you are. When you recognize I'm a sinner and I need God to forgive me and love me and save me, that is when you are ready to come, when you recognize your need. If you believe Jesus Christ died on a cross in your place and he rose again from the dead bodily, then you say that. You trust him to save your life, to forgive your sin. And then here's my challenge to you. Next weekend, we're going to have water baptisms again because we had a lot of people that wanted to be water baptized. I want to challenge you. If you'd say to me, I believe in Jesus. I know he died for me. I know he rose again. I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to serve him. He's shown me my my need for a savior, and I believe he's the one, and you're at that point. Then next week, you need to demonstrate that in a public way by being water baptized and demonstrate to the world around you that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't make you born again, but it demonstrates that you're born of God and that you believe in Jesus Christ and He's your Lord and Savior. So I would encourage you to be water baptized next week. Does that make sense? So you repent, you confess, you believe, and then get baptized to show your faith. Amen?